Welcome to The Gospel for Life. Last weekend, we held our annual Reformation Boise Conference, where speakers Dr. Mark Jones and Dr. Cornelis Venema spoke on the theme of In Christ Alone. And we would like to share with you this week a portion of the Q&A session that was held there. If you would like to hear more from this conference, you can view the full conference for free at ReformationBoise.com by clicking on the Reformation Archive link. Please enjoy this special edition of The Gospel for Life. Uh, Here's a comment. Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Mark, for that last session on obedience. Um, We'll definitely tell our college kids to listen to it. My struggle is doing good works to be rewarded in heaven. How is that different than Jesus' disciples wanting to sit at his right and left hand in Mark 10, 37? Well, maybe it's not. Um... You know, it, is it what is it necessarily wrong for them to have the desire to, to be seated with Christ in glory? You know, I, I'm not convinced that you know that's necessarily uh, the motives and, and and surrounding it. You know, Christ takes issue with who has that authority, his Father's authority, but also are they willing to undergo what is necessary to have that dignity? So the the, the desire is not wrong. I want to be at the highest place of glory that I can be in heaven if it's a legitimate promise. Uh, but am I therefore willing to sacrifice or, or go through the cross-shaped life that is required for that type of... So I don't think the disciples were, were necessarily wrong to have that desire. It's quite, Christ is questioning whether they're willing to get there the way Christ is going to get there. Uh, and that, that, for me, is the, the issue. Dr. Van Emma, do you want to add anything to that? I probably shouldn't, but I can't <laughs> help. I, I fall prey to temptation. <laughs> I very much enjoyed Dr. Jones' second presentation and heartily agree with what I believe I heard. I, I have struggled. I wrote on this topic a little bit in a book, The Promise of the Future, where I deal with this issue of rewards. And you mentioned Jonathan Edwards, who has some very interesting, somewhat speculative observations about how that could be well-motivated. And I actually tried in my book to distinguish between the principal motivation of the Christian life, which I think is thankfulness. It's born, you know, the confessions talk about good works proceed from true faith. And I think the point there is, As Dr. Jones pointed out, we're accepted in Christ. Our right standing with God, an expectation of receiving the reward of eternal life, is entirely secured by Christ's work alone. Nothing we do, nothing in our hands do we bring. And so I try to, you know, Paul in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices of thanksgiving. The, the confessions are wanting to say they proceed from true faith because they're born out of gratitude and a recognition of an acceptance already embraced. So I didn't use the word motivations in respect to the rewards, which I affirm the Scriptures teach. And it's quite regular as a motif in the New Testament and in the Scriptures generally. I use the word encouragement. That the and I don't think it really works. I have to admit. I often say to my students, I've written things in the past. I don't agree with myself. Hmm. 
It's not that encouragement isn't a kind of motive or involve a motivation. If you encourage someone with the prospect of reward, that can be a legitimate motive. But I, I try to use the word encouragement to say it's a subordinate motive. It's not the principal or foremost impulse for the life of the Christian. If it were, it could be a little bit like, I forget the author who wrote a, I don't think, a very good book a number of years ago, an evangelical, Going for the Gold, where the whole consuming interest of the Christian life is what will it finally obtain for me if I do this? What will I gain by doing this? But it is a lesser motive, a kind of encouragement. Uh, to, to know that God who accepts us in Christ also delights in the works that he himself enables us to do by the renewing of, uh, work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's a delicate, that's a difficult, uh, you know, it depends. I think this is an instance of when you're talking to a mixed audience, for some people that could easily be misappropriated and be used in a way that is detrimental to the gospel of our free acceptance in Christ. I think that's why Dr. Jones was very careful to even reference those two Latin terms to get at the distinction. But the lines can easily be blurred, and so it's a, it's a topic. He treated it with care, and it needs to be treated with care. Okay. In what way are good works necessary for salvation? Someone's been reading Facebook and blogs, and <laughs> so uh, there's a there's a reformed vocabulary that um, has been lost. Not lost. We, you know, in the 20th century, we didn't have a lot of reformed historical theologians. You know, you had you had uh, John Gerstner kind of doing his best, but it was mainly through Edwards and, and R.C. Sproul came as a popularizer, but he wasn't a historical theologian and. Uh, all sorts of controversies erupted and stuff. And, and in the last 20 years, you see a lot of sources being uncovered, translated, a lot of PhD students doing ex excellent work. Um, Richard Muller, um, who had benefited from other professors. You just see, like, things are very different now. So what's happening, I think, is a recovery of reformed language that had helped us in the past to be clear about what we mean and do not mean. So when we talk about good works as necessary for salvation, we're not talking as though they merit salvation, but the language that was used among the Reformed from the sort of post-Reformation period on is that they are the way to life, that they're the path upon which God has set for us to walk to the final destination. And uh, so the, the language of the right of salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, that he gives us the rights to salvation. So why should we be assured of heaven and glory? It's because Christ has purchased that right. But in order to come to possession of salvation, we walk upon a path where good works have been prepared in advance for us to do. And that's the path that God has marked for us. And you can't decide to take your own path. So... Um, when Paul says in Romans 8.13 that if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the spirits you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, you will live, that's the idea in which they are necessary as a, um, we would say, a consequent condition to possessing eternal life is that we go on these 
these steps, I would say, not to attain salvation uh, in terms of the right, but in terms of getting to the final destination, the path that God has marked out. So it's called the way to life. Good works are the way to life. And you can't go a different way. That's how they're necessary. Now, there's so many other phrases and distinctions and stuff to clarify that point, but that's my basic answer is, is recovering the terminology of the way to life. Um, they're not the right to life. So you don't get to heaven and say, well, I've done these good works. This is why you let me in. But the good works are the path upon which when you meet God, you stand in the justified or the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that is why you have the rights to life. So, I'm sure. If I may add just a little to that, I'm a person who's fairly familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asks this very question in the form of, if it's true that our acceptance with God, our justification, is entirely and adequately based upon the perfect righteousness of Christ, the seamless and complete obedience of Christ, why must we then still do good works? Now, it doesn't use the word necessary, but it's another way of saying the same thing. And the first part of its answer is because Christ also, by his Spirit, renews us after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a point that I wrote a dissertation for my Ph.D. on Calvin's understanding of what he calls the twofold grace of God. They're both graces. They're both benefits of Christ's saving work, our justification and our sanctification. So you can no more separate them, though you must distinguish them and keep them distinct, than you can separate Christ, he says, from his spirit. It's the same thing that the Westminster Confession is saying when it says the faith that alone is instrumental to our justification is never alone in the justified. It uses the language, such faith is ever accompanied by the things that it necessarily produces. Or as Calvin, in a rather well-known statement, put it, it may be true faith alone justifies, but such faith is never alone in the justified. And that's not to say, you have to be very careful here, if you say works are necessary, you're not saying they're necessary as ground or basis upon which you have the right to eternal life. But they're necessary in the sense that in no instance will Christ be given to a believer. Another favorite text of Calvin was 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is given to us not only for righteousness, but also for wisdom, for sanctification. This question, in its own way, relates to a much-discussed question in recent times among evangelicals regarding so-called non-lordship salvation, which is, I think, a somewhat perverted representation of what the Reformed, uh, the Reformation taught, suggesting that you can, it's a sort of a second blessing notion, that you can be justified but not yet sanctified. And some Christians go to that second level, they're no longer so-called carnal Christians. They become spiritual Christians as they grow in holiness and do good works by the working of the Spirit. But that's not good biblical or Reformation thinking. Um, but it is a... If you say good works are necessary, one needs a few of these types of careful distinctions without separating in order to not leave the impression 
I mean, the formula of Concord of the Lutheran tradition, among other things, asks the question very explicitly, how should preachers communicate the necessity of good works? And the short answer, it's not a short answer in the formula, but the short answer is very carefully and circumspectively. What is a good response to Christians who feel the Reformation is irrelevant to the church today? I know that's been kind of circulated around in the last decade or so, that Reformation is over, has no bearing on the church today. What would you say to that? Well, I don't agree. <laughs> really? I, uh, since Dr. Jones is hesitant to respond, I'll, I'll say a little something and he can fi fix it up and perfect it. But... It belongs to and is undoubtedly and undeniably a great chapter in the history of the Holy Catholic Church. I don't think any part of the Church's history, not just the Reformation, there's, there's always the temptation to make the Reformation everything, even if it's a most important thing. It isn't everything. We belong to a Church with a long history preceding and subsequent to the Reformation. If the, if the comment there is simply to say that we have to address new questions uh, in a way that answers to them from the scriptures, I have no quibble or quarrel. That is where we will end for today. Thank you for joining us to hear this special edition Q&A session with Dr. Mark Jones and Dr. Cornelis Venema. Please join us again tomorrow on The Gospel for Life.